Hello and welcome back into the salon for another discussion about golf course architecture and design with me, Derek Duncan, my co-host, golf course builder Jim Urbina, and our guest, Thad Layden. This is Volume 4, and it's brought to you by Golf Digest. As we continue to move through the long weeks of this tragic and anxious shared experience, Jim and I sincerely hope these talks continue to be points of light and interesting diversions. It's such a rare opportunity to be able to get the leading designers and course builders of modern age in discussions where we can listen to them talk freely about what they do and share their thoughts and experiences in casual conversation. We'll keep doing it as long as we can, as long as we're mostly housebound, and we feel privileged that we can record these discussions for you now and for posterity. And finally, we wish you and your families and friends continued health and safety. Please give us feedback on what you think of the salon. You can do it on Twitter, follow me at FeedTheBall, or you can email me directly at Derek underscore Duncan at Discovery.com. The previous volume with Jeff Mingay discussing St. Andrews and the Old Course was incredibly popular, and in this volume we're going to talk to Thad Layton of Arnold Palmer Design Company about the unwritten rules of golf architecture, which ones should be followed and which ones broken, and about his time and experiences working alongside the King. So let's get right into it. Here's me, Jim, and Thad. You know, Derek, when we talk about guidelines, when we talk about what inspiration we look for when we're doing golf courses, what rules we have to follow, there are a lot of rules that the Golden Age designers put out there for us to study. And there are rules of, of, of uh, modern architecture. But one of the things that caught my attention in, in my readings, and, and I love Robert Hunter. He was uh, the associate of Alistair McKenzie on some of the famous golf courses in California. He wrote a book called The Links by Robert Hunter. And this really caught my attention about what we're looking for, what he was looking for. If you don't mind, I'd like to read it. And I'd love to hear it. And this is a quote from Robert Hunter. What architect would not struggle hard to avoid having an out-of-bounds paralleling the first hole? Yet both at Presswick and Hoyle Lake, we are faced with that. Blind one-shot holes are always most undesirable, and yet the maiden at Sandwich was sacrificed under protest. And who would dare lay his hands on the sandy parlor at Deal? So goes golf on the links, those sacred bits of God's earth where men have battled for generations, like the sailor or the mountaineer with what nature has placed before them, end quote. Mm -hmm. And so you see that Robert Hunter, as he described visiting the links lands, there are rules and and who would want to out of bounds at Presswick? You know, I played there, and, and and one of the first scariest moments of my life is, wow, if I slice this ball over there, I could put a window out on the train. <laughs> Who designed this golf course? But as we have witnessed and we have watched, there are some sacred bits of God's earth that we have to navigate. And why change it? Because it breaks some rule or doesn't follow some rule. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Obviously, a lot of the quote-unquote rules were broken in that era based on landforms. And in most cases, I'm sure they were 
you know, it was the the right decision and it produced a historic result. But this, there's something interesting. Hunter's not the only architect or writer from that era who kind of made a list of rules. There's something, I think there's something instinctual about being in professions that are, that can be so technical at times that there is an instinct to lay down a set of criteria or rules or, or paradigms. And he's not the only one. I think Donald Ross did it. Um, other, other people kind of had these guidelines and yet they're not always followed, you know, they're there. And it makes me wonder like, what's the, what's the point do, and you can answer this, do designers, are they ever conscious of rules? Do they really need guidelines? Do you ever look at uh, a list of, of maxims that somebody else put out and, and try to adhere to them? Well, there are some rules that you, that you need to, to follow. And there are some, uh, like for no better term, engineering, uh, things that you should be aware of, uh, faulty soils. Uh, you should be aware of, of, uh, uh drainage patterns, uh, rules to, to, that, that involve uh, water management. There are rules that we have to follow and there are rules that we have to be conscious of. But if somebody said, well, I don't like a blind hole. Well, I can name six or seven golf holes that you would love to play that are blind. So it breaks a rule. And so, yes, there are guidelines. And yes, golf designers, golf course builders, golf course architects, whatever label you like to apply to that, have to follow rules. But for every rule, you can find a broken rule that would say, you know, it was okay. Back-to-back par threes. You would never think to design back-to-back par threes. But you know how... That worked out for one iconic designer in California. Absolutely. In, in case listeners you haven't been able to discern so far, rules is kind of the topic of our uh, discussion today with Thad Layton. Thad Layton worked for years and years with Arnold Palmer Design. He still does, actually. It's just that uh, Arnold Palmer's not there anymore. He and Brandon Johnson are in charge of the firm's work these days. But he's going to come on, and we're going to talk about rules, what's acceptable, the nature of rules. Are the are these quote-unquote rules for architecture, are they written, are they unwritten? When is it okay to bend and break them? Should we actively attempt at this point in golf course architecture history at this moment in time, should we attempt to break rules? Does that uh, un- unleash and an unbridled design? Is that the, the secret to a new level of creativity? So we're going to get into those discussions and those topics with Thad in just a minute. Jim, I noticed that you have played a lot of Arnold Palmer Design Group's courses. Where do you think that Palmer and his courses kind of fit into the overall story of American or modern American golf course architecture. Because if there's one thing that I've learned about your business, it's that nothing gets respect more than a portfolio. You can disagree or not get on board or, you know, jibe with with what you're seeing. But the fact that people are out there doing work is something that needs to be respected. But where does Arnold Palmer's work fit into the story of, of modern American architecture? Well, you know, I started to discover Palmer, Arnold Palmer golf courses, not by mistake, but by, but by happenstance. I didn't really seek them out in the beginning, but when I was living in California, I went and saw Aviera, 
and I thought, wow, this golf course is impressive the way they got this laid in here. Uh, who designed this golf course? Well, I come to find out, uh, I knew one of the shapers who did the shaping there, Rocky, and he said, well, that's an Arnold Palmer golf course. Oh, okay. So I kind of checked it out and gained some information, and I wanted to seek out more. And then I go come back to Denver, and I find out one of the stiffer tests of golf, Bear Creek Golf Club in, in Denver, right. Arnold Palmer Golf Course. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I like this hole. I, I don't care for that hole. And so I started to seek them out, not everywhere like the Golden Age designs. I'm not going to lie to you, Derek. I don't really seek out modern designs that much. I tend to go and find something of 1905, 1925. I, I tend to seek those out. But if I'm in the area and somebody talks highly of a golf course, and if it's a modern one, uh, somebody said, you should go see Bear Creek. So I did. And I thought, that's some, some pretty good holes. And I kept looking and I kept uh, uh, reaching out and, and saying, hey, who, who designed this golf course? Who designed that golf course? The one at PGA West, well, pretty creative. I thought, wow, who did this? I, I, and what's one of the things I'd like to talk to that about? Who was involved with this uh, golf course? It's Tralee in Ireland. Have you ever played it? No, not Tralee. I haven't. Oh, I mean, you walk that property and you think, <laughs> these lucky sons of guns here, man, this is really right. a cool piece of property. And so I wanted to find out. Uh, more about these designs and and who came up with them. Uh, uh, Angel Park in, in Las Vegas, uh, the golf course and and the putting course. That's pretty creative stuff. And so, not everything is going to be gained from steady and old golf course designs and and architecture. I do seek them out. I did uh, uh, look for Arnold Palmer golf courses. Some of them, you know, don't do much for me, but other ones I thought were very interesting. And so I went in, went in, uh, went in doubt. If there's one close by that somebody talks about, I go and ta I go and take a look. I, I don't know how many of you've seen, but uh, you must have run across a few that you really liked. Yeah, I've probably seen eight or ten or twelve over my travels. I, what strikes me, I think Palmer Design was more than anything a firm of their times. And meaning what I mean by that is they were representative of, of what was going on in mainstream architecture at any given time from the 70s into the 80s into the 90s into the 2000s, whereas at different periods of time, they're designing golf courses that are reflective of what the market is, is building, what other people are building. They did a lot of development, housing development courses, so they had to play by the restrictions of, of the land planning. They did a lot of resort courses. They had a large firm with a, a number of associates. So whoever was the associate on a given project would probably, and I'd like to talk to Thad about this as well, it would probably be able to put uh, a little bit of their imprint on it, but I don't know how much. And of course, as the decades went on, their design style would reflect the changes in the in the golf culture. The 80s were a little bit more pizzazz. The 90s were a little more big budget. By the 2000s, they're noticing what you're doing and, and your contemporaries are doing with naturalism, and they're, they're kind of trying to maybe get into that naturalistic look. They did nine holes here in Georgia at a place called Champions Retreat. They did nine holes. Nicholas did nine. Uh, Gary Player did the other nine. And their nine holes is the best on the property. It's really fantastic, really evocative, really sexy, um, and unexpected f for what I was expecting from their firm. So I just think that they're 
were never trailblazers, but they were obviously very successful and they were kind of just rolling with the times. And now that uh, the firm is in the hands of, of, of Brandon and Thad, it's pretty exciting. I've seen some of the work that they've done and, and they're really trying to, to be creative with some of their shapes and their, their approaches to design. It's a nice uh, fresh departure from what we'd expect from that firm. And I know Thad will have a lot to say about that. So uh, with your permission, Jim, I think we should go straight to our talk with Thad Layton. Well, no permission needed. I'm looking forward to talking to him. I would like to have been the associate at Turtle Bay in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if they had to fight over that one. <laughs> Agreed. Let's find out. Let's Here's it. Thad Layton. Okay, Thad, so I saw something that you you said or you wrote recently, and it had to do with, uh, not exactly, but the quote-unquote rules of, of architecture, and it got me thinking about it. I know it got Jim thinking about it. What what are rules to architecture? Are there really, and, and you kind of laid a few out, and it, and it made sense. There are, there do, do seem to be some things that define architecture and some parameters that almost every architect and almost every golf course exists within these these certain boundaries. And, and over the years, there have been uh, rules. Certain architects have laid out lists and maxims of, of things, do's and don'ts. Others have ignored them. Others, periods in time, it, it seems... Uh, the architects and and builders of that era were very almost clinically following certain uh, certain types of rules, but I guess I'm wondering for you personally when you go into a project, do you ever impose rules on yourself? And if so, what might those be? Is it possible to to go into a project and be completely neutral as far as what the possibilities are? I think that's a big ask to just completely dispose of everything that you've learned up until a certain point in your career and, and go into it blind. I mean, I, I think the only rule uh, of the official rules or unofficial rules of golf course architecture that you might want to keep front of mind is safety. And I think everything else is fair game from there. That's a good point. I, you know, when you talk about, when you talk about laying out a golf course, uh, uh, and, you know, Derek, we talked about that with Jeff Minge at uh, the old course with crossing fairways. I said jokingly to Jeff, you know, are you going to put crossing fairways in your golf course? Uh, Thad brings it out, point, uh, points it out perfectly. Safety is a consideration that you have to maintain. Thad, do you think about safety uh, in the sense of of, uh, of spacing, or do you just think about safety in the sense of of uh, uh, of the layout of the, of the golf course, uh, uh, steepness of bunkers, uh, uh, greens close to a uh, an edge of a of a ravine, something like that? Yeah, well, it's kind of a boring subject, but I mean, it's something that all golf course architects uh, to kind of absolve themselves of any liability and do their duty as an architect have to consider the safety of not only other golfers but things that might be adjacent to a golf course like uh, you know if you, if you have any housing on the course uh, just being cognizant of certain shot biases you know uh, slices off uh, predominantly right hand golfers apologies to if, if either one of you guys hit it on the other side of the ball but uh, you know I think most architects will uh, 
kind of keep that in mind if you've got parallel fairways um thinking about you know if, if holes are running in the opposite direction just trying that you would prefer um the, the slice side to uh go away from the other golf hole um and more towards an out-of-bounds situation at least personally um and instead of having fairways uh that are kind of going where the slice side is going going right into each other and um, creating a safety issue how uh how how interesting you bring up the slice because i was telling derek that, that the first hole at presswick the train line runs right across uh, right next to the first hole and the first thing i thought about when i hit my soft fade uh, <laughs> soft fade that you know i it's could a hit fade. that train it's a fade not a slice <laughs> <laughs> that i could hit that train go buzzing by and and, you know, the rules back then, as compared to the rules to today, safety is key. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. That, that's 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 uh, vital to, to the layout of some of these golf courses. Yeah. That uh, first tee at Prestwick is a, is a jarring, uh, <laughs> like a fruit awakening in it. <laughs> Welcome to golf. And, and watch that train, by the way. It's better than a stiff drink in the morning. Uh, get your attention uh jim you mentioned our conversation with jeff and and the the when you get out to the fish hook at st andrews and those holes cross could you build crossing holes now is there any situation where that could potentially work claremont well he's he 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 hit it right on the head uh, but there's they, a on golf a, course that one, didn't you, jim? no yeah i i consult there uh, and uh, thankfully, uh, Mr. McKenzie laid it out, uh, and the club has accepted how it works. And that brings up a point, Derek, to your question. A private club with crossing fairways like Claremont, courtesy prevails. Uh, the player plays across, the, uh, the golfers know who has the right of way, and they've learned how to work with that uh, almost um, a uh, hundred years of, of, of uh, a tradition at Claremont. So yes, it does work in that situation today uh, at a private club, uh, at a public club, a public golf course, it'd be tough. It'd be tough to get that in there because a uh, courtesy sometimes does not prevail as Thad knows. And it would be tough to lay something in there that, uh, that uh, you would think that, well, you know, you see him coming across the fairway. Why did you hit it? So courtesy sometimes doesn't prevail. And I don't know if the Thad and I would consider crossing fairway fairways in today's uh, climate. I guess it would depend on at what point in the holes did they cross, right? You could have a, you could walk off a green and then kind of walk behind the green or off to the side and then hit across the line but you know the chances of you hitting anybody are pretty there but, but if the holes are crossing 250 yards down the fairway and making an x then you're going to have that <laughs> that slaughter zone in the middle right yeah yeah if, if it's a high-end private club i think you might be able to get away with that um you know if there's a, a necessity for that if you've got a small site and you're trying to get in 18, 18 holes i thought mckenzie's solution at claremont was pretty brilliant i don't know how it worked after it initially opened i mean it's, it's obviously still there um right. so that speaks right. to its uh, longevity but uh, yeah i mean i wouldn't throw it out the window um as far as a potential rule to break on the safety side it's like yeah if, if you've got a private club and you've got a particular interesting geographic feature that maybe justify that might justify that crossover 
and you don't have a lot of play, then, uh, you know, it might be worth doing. How it works at Claremont is the fairway of number seven is crossing hole number four and number five. The fifth tee box is right by the fairway, so people can see the people coming down seven. And the fourth green is right by the fairway, so people could see coming up four can see the people on seven. It's in a perfect situation. Uh, people know how to play it. People are used to it. A courtesy prevails. It works. Uh, that brings up a good point about uh, in the location and, and the routing. Let's say that you were going out to a beautiful point on the ocean. Uh, let's say you had a par four and you were coming down the, 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 a golf hole and you were playing right out to the point of the ocean, but you wanted a tee to, to be right in that location going across another direction. You could consider that, uh, but I have not seen it done yet. I wonder if some of those situations where we're, uh, we would be averse to a modern new course having crossing holes is really more out of concern than than actual function. You know, it's more that you just couldn't, you get people too worried about it, even though the likelihood of conflict is very low. And I think about when Dunebeg first opened, there were a couple crossovers on that golf course. And there was quite a lot of talk about how dangerous it was and how awkward those moments were. But why I played there and I didn't feel that it was awkward or, or dangerous at all. I think they've gone back and maybe altered the, the course. I'm not sure. I think they have altered it and removed most of those. But it seemed to me like much ado about nothing. I think I know of the holes you talk about. It's a par three and a par four. I think so. Yeah, I yes, think so. Yes. Again, I, I agree with you. It, it didn't strike me as being uh, a safety issue. I have not seen it since you have seen it where they've changed it. But it didn't strike me as being something that I thought, uh, you know, I'm kind of scared standing here. So, you know, uh, I think it's in, in, in its proper place and uh, the location, elevation, uh, it probably wouldn't, it probably could work. Thad, what is, are there certain rules that you see almost taking as doctrine uh, in modern architecture that, that aggravate you the most? Certain things that you wish we would see moved off of more? Yeah, you know, it may be more of an agronomic question than anything else. A lot of pushback maybe you'll get from certain superintendents that they don't want to see any of their greens less than 4,000 square feet or larger than 8,000 square feet. You know, if you put those kind of shackles on an architect, you've really limited the amount of variety that you have in the golf course and the interest and pin positions. Um, you know, just all unravels from there. But, uh, you know, it... it, it Sometimes I, I certainly understand the need to design a golf course with the agronomic conditions in mind, but uh, you want to make sure that that uh, cart is in front of the horse. Dad, were you familiar? Uh, how earlier in your architecture career were you familiar with McKenzie's 13 rules of design? Um, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, Jim. I just uh, I was actually reading through those earlier in the day. Um, I, I probably picked up uh, McKenzie's book on golf architecture about 15 years ago. So uh, I don't know, maybe when I was 30. And did the rules? I mean, did you sit there and think, "Well, I got to follow all of these rules," or they had no relevance to modern uh, style of architecture? 
Well, you know, if, if you look at his very first rule, he talks about the golf course should be arranged in two loops of nine holes. But if you think about McKenzie's, some of his best work, I mean, Cypress Point is an example. Um, you know, that's a, that's a continuous 18-hole loop, and that's a pretty good golf course. So, um, But I, I think he does put the caveat in, his, in that original statement unless conditions dictate otherwise, um, you know, try to return the nines. So there, there's some great golf courses. I mean, one of my favorite courses in the world, uh, Pacific Dunes. I, I know you're quite familiar with that one, Jim. Just a um, little. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great uh, out and back uh, scenario. And I just, you know, to, to maybe – you know, go out there and put the clubhouse on the edge of the sea and try to do returning nines to that location. I, I don't think that golf course would be anywhere close to what it is. You might have a good view from the grill room, but I don't think the golf would be as good. Isn't that funny that uh, sometimes people think the clubhouse location should drive the routing, and you and I both know that that's so far from the truth. Yeah. I think I, I'm going to cross off... That. I'm, I'm going to, on the general principles and Alistair McKenzie's number one, I'm going to go ahead and uh, blacken that out and pretend that he never said that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Thad, I'm guessing you might have come upon this a little bit more in your career than Jim has. But speaking of, you know, thinking of, of what the unwritten rules are, I would imagine that, that with Arnold Palmer Design, you worked with a lot of clients who maybe weren't willing or able to think outside the box and you know they would they expected a par 72 they wanted 7200 yards they wanted it to be a championship golf course they wanted returning nines all those type of things is that something that you encountered quite often with the clients that you were working with yeah i think when when i first started the first 10 years with the company there was a, a bit of a formula and uh yeah typically our golf courses were par 72 um two threes and two fives on each side um we tried to create as much variety within that framework as possible but uh, that's what the developers wanted that was kind of the the mantra back then the distance had to be over seven thousand yards if possible because in a lot of people's minds especially developers um not only did that constitute a championship golf course but that let them string as much real estate as they possibly could along the fairways yielding lot premiums to pay for the golf course you know fortunately in the past 10 years we've been able to migrate away from that a little bit and um for lack of better words try to educate developers that there's a better way um you know one of the biggest downsides with that approach i just mentioned is the walks between greens and tees just uh it's just just it would be a golf course you wouldn't want to walk um, because of the way the the course was routed um, to take advantage of lot premiums. So fortunately, I think uh, we're getting away from that and we're trying to create more core golf to have a more cohesive golf experience. But yeah, I mean, that was that was a formula that made money um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Hey, that I was thinking to myself, I remember some of the rules that and they were rules to be taken with with a, a grain of salt but pete died and and when i worked for his son perry we were always looking to create that line that 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 uh, 
that line that you hit across that that you couldn't gauge distance. And he does it at the 18th at Sawgrass. Pete does it, uh, uh, as my dad would say, rest in peace. Pete used to do it at Sawgrass. He did it at PGA West. It's that line that you hit off the tee that that you really can't judge the distance across what water you have to carry. Did Mr. Palmer have rules when you walked around with him that he felt that were not mandatory, but some things that you like to 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 uh, uh, to keep in mind when you were laying out 18 holes or, or building 18 greens or bunkers? Were there some unwritten rules that Mr. Palmer liked to have? I'll answer that question two parts, Jim. Um, you know, it was one of the great things working for Mr. Palmer about working for Mr. Palmer was that he gave three overarching principles. It has to be beautiful. It has to be fun. It has to be playable for every every golfer of every ability. So within that overarching framework, the architects that work for Mr. Palmer, I think, had it pretty good because they were allowed to uh, the creative license within that framework. And that was, that was one of my greatest joys working for him as I was able to come up with ideas as long as I was within those three uh, categories Um within those rules um i knew i was going to be i was going to be okay um so that that kept me engaged kept me interested um and you know i've I've talked with some other golf course architects that uh work for other big name players and you know it's from my understanding it's it's not quite the same setup so i feel fortunate um in mr palmer's design philosophy and how he allowed his architects some creative freedom um with that overarching principle I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. That's kind of cool to to know that that within that framework you could deviate to create those that foundation. That that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think that's part of the reason why there's a among our you know 300 plus golf courses in 40 years. You know, I, I certainly wasn't around 40 years ago um, when the firm was created. So there's a, there's a lot of work that I wasn't directly involved in, but uh, there's a lot of variety within that uh, portfolio. But uh, to your specific question about water, you know, it's. Uh, I've always been a fan of kind of that edge on angle design, if you will, of Pete Dye um, as a player, just kind of, man, man, you you see that line, Um, you kind of know what you have to do. And you know, it almost as soon as you hit it, (laughs) if it's going to be wet or dry. Yep. Yep. Um, so that in it also you know, kind of put this uh, this mental hazard into play because it was like, man, am I am I hitting the right club? Am I being too bold? Not bold enough? Um, so Mr. Palmer, he didn't like the straight lines um, as much as Pete Dye because in his mind it wasn't as beautiful. So he liked to meander his lake edges a little bit. I will say one of the downsides of meandering a lake edge is you might have some blind spots. Um, where you might not see the ball go in the water, and I think that's something we've uh, we've tried to uh, strike a balance between how Pete Dye did it with those straight lines and knowing if you're up or down versus kind of a, a really jagged lake shore when we have golf holes playing along the water. That's interesting because I uh, the only I can think of another architect. And this is uh, this is from way back, uh, where the, that contour mowing, that that meandering line, was deemed to be uh, aesthetically pleasing. 
and I think to myself, was Pete too rigid in his lines? And did he take away from the beauty uh, of those lake edges or those long carries? And now that when I look at these meandering lines, are they are they more creative? Do they give you a chance to be uh, strategic instead of uh, a pass fail on that line? What do you think? That is it, is it more strategic with meandering lines? Um, I think it's more strategic with the straight line, but I think there's a balance in between those two opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think if you look at uh, kind of the disciples, the people that have worked for Dai over the years and how they've taken their lessons they've learned from him, and, you know, the strategy is still there. The line is still there. It's embedded in the architecture. It's just so camouflaged that to the untrained eye, you just you don't see it um, like you would. Um, some of Pete Dye's work with railroad ties and uh, string straight lines. What do you think? Well, I, I, you know, the, the, the thing for me, and, and Derek, uh, hang tight here. I, I, I have a question for you, but I want to throw this back at that. It was ingrained in me, that line. Uh, I, and I knew if I didn't set that line right, uh, somebody was going to say something to me, whether it be uh, Perry or his father, Pete, or, or Alice died, uh, for that matter of fact. And that line was so important. And I thought that was the only way. And I wonder if, if the, the meandering that, that Thad talks about, the meandering line could have really been used as the more strategic uh, placement uh, off the off the tee, where you, if you landed at a two thirty on the meandering la- lake edge, let's say for example, or you landed at a two fifty, or you landed at a two eighty on that line of, of of instinct, that that could have been as strategic as as Pete's straight line. Uh, and now the more I think about it, the, the more I would I may, I may search that out to see if there was something more to the meandering line than than I give it than I ever gave it credit for. Yeah. If you look at some of the holes out of Cypress points come into mind, you know, uh, 16, the par three and a half where you've got that jagged coastline and there's yep. some, yep, that's true. Yeah. That's a bit of a meandering line. And it certainly makes you, uh, makes you think before you hit it, you're going to make a decision. It makes it a two shot or a three shot hole. Depends on where you want to place it instead of pass and fail. I, I don't, you know, I like that. I like yeah. that. I think Pebble Beach's line is a little bit more Pete Dye-ish right. uh, but on the 18th hole. But, you know, you can say number eight, uh, you have two lines, two distinct lines, the landing area on eight at Pebble Beach and then a 45-degree a, a line on your second shot. So there's two different lines. You know what? I'm going to have to explore that a little bit more, Derek. Uh, uh, maybe two or three lines – is is more appealing strategic than just a simple straight line you might you might need to find some cliffs or or a golf course that with a lot of water hazards you know one of the things talking about pete is um and jim i'd like to hear your answer to this is at least when he built his really famous golf courses he knew that they were likely going to hold a a high level tournament likely with tour players so part of what he would do in in creating those lines was to create a sense of severity and like as you said it kind of a a 
green light, red light, do or die situation. And there was also the the psychological element he was trying to infuse. There's something stark about that and the angle. It was it was very difficult for high level players to commit to a shot and make a decision. That I think that's why his architecture is so distinct. When we think of uh, Arnold Palmer design, forty years of design. And we, what Thad just said, you know, there's so many different styles there uh, d- uh, through different eras. The courses look different. They evolved with the times. He had so many different associates who had input on how a course turned out. And then you have Pete Dye, who also evolved, but it was always that thing with him. And that's why I think we, we look back at Pete Dye and we have such a clear conception of what he was doing. And uh, I, frankly, and, and I've said this to Thad before on our other podcast, you know, somebody like Pete Dye's architecture is really respected. He's got courses that are really studied and revered. And, and Palmer doesn't really have very many golf courses that fit into that category. And I think it's because of that uh, distinct style that, that, that Dye always presented. And I was going to ask you, Jim, and then Thad, you can follow up on that if, as well. But I was going to ask you, did did Dye always want to present that psychological element to the players? Or if we really look closely, does it mostly exist on just sort of his like top 20% of courses that we really know about that he spent a lot of time working on? Well, I do know that uh, one of the holes we had to, a long discussion on, it's the I don't believe the golf course is open anymore. It was the 16th hole at the Arizona State University golf course, the Karsten golf course at ASU. And I remember him building this tiny green, which which goes into the that you talked about, you know, what size of greens are, are relevant to the shot. I remember this tiny green and we're, we're laying out the hole as a part three, long line, as you just, just described, that long, uh, difficult line. And the tee could stretch back to, I believe, 265. And I remember Steve Loy, the coach at ASU, coming, walking by during construction. And he says, I'm going to tell any one of my kids, if they aim for this green, they're off the team. And that's a paraphrase. But... I remember Pete saying, "Ah, oh, these kids—they can hit it a mile. This is this is not this is not that hard. Small green, long line. That was kind of what Pete knew that was going to capture that very good golfer. I don't want to put say great golfer. That very uh, skilled golfer. It, it would capture their attention and and make them." Uh, fidget a little bit and make them think about the shot and i think that the the long wavy lines you you see some sense of of uh, of uh, uh, a bailout uh, for no better term that you, you have a chance to make that 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 shot but at the 16th at asu i remember pete saying those kids they're skilled enough that, that they're not going to have any problem with that small green long line 265 yards. What's the big deal? That was back in two, uh, 1988, believe it or not, 1988. So I think that's what Pete tried to do. He tried to test the skilled players. And then we would have the tee up at, at 180, 150 that wouldn't challenge that line. And, and uh, the the average player could, uh, the, the, the player like me, could, could bunt it down the, the fairway and get on the green and make a bogey and be happy with it. So that's kind of how we approached it. Uh, and he did it over and over and over. And I studied it time and time again, 
You could go everywhere. I called it the X factor. And I just noticed that everywhere I went, he loved that line. It's funny to hear Thad talk about the opposite of that line and, and where they used it in the creative side, the beauty side uh, of uh, Arnold Palmer design. Hey, since I have your attention, I'd like to let you know that right now you can download the Golf Digest Digital Edition for free on your phone or tablet. All the features that normally appear in the magazine are now available to you in digital format, including my regularly occurring column on architecture called Of Course. In issue 5, I write, Then and Wow, about the last 30 years in golf design, and describe the defining elements that differentiate where architecture is today compared to 1989. You'll also get breaking stories from GolfDigest.com, plus a number of other interactive items not possible in print format. To access everything Golf Digest has to offer, just go to your preferred app store, download the Golf Digest magazine app, and start reading. Now back to our talk. Thad, you mentioned a minute ago Palmer, basically, and and some of the courses you worked on and, and all the associates who've come through knew they had three objectives, and that was to make the course fun to make it look look beautiful and to make it playable. Speaking within the context of this discussion about rules, did you always know where the line was on each of those criteria? I mean, I imagine beauty, you can figure out, you can go in and, and, and do things to the whole to make it uh, attractive. But, you know, playability and fun are sort of sliding scale targets. So it, did you always know where the line was? Even in some maybe subconsciously, did you know what the boundary was, what the rule, where the rule was going to be stretched, but not broken. All right. I mean, Derek, when I think about fun, I think about options. So, you know, we try to inject as much width as possible. I was talking with someone earlier today about a lot of the renovations that we're doing, how we're eliminating sand, uh, you know, in some cases, 60 to 70% of the area of, of bunkers on courses that we did 20 years ago, we're, we're taken out. And what's, What's come out on the other side, the, the end product is a golf course that's more fun to play because it's, it's, you know, there's more width out there. There's more options for different levels of players to kind of choose their own adventure. And then conversely, it's, uh, it's also a golf course that's more playable in different weather conditions. Um, and, and then, you know, furthermore, from, from a maintenance standpoint, you've got, you know, a much easier uh, golf course to maintain with uh, over half the sand now gone trees really yeah yeah we were uh, i would say we would probably average four to five acres of sand on a lot of the golf courses we were doing when i first started out you know there was a there was a strong emphasis on beauty from you know, Mr. Palmer and the developers, you know, people that were going to have a house and a golf course, you know, it, it was preferable for them to see some sand. That was uh, was part of the beauty, at least in some people's mind, that helped, helped sell lots. So, um, you know, we're, I'm finding myself going back and working on stuff 20 years later. And it's like, man, this <laughs> we can take out seven seven of these eight bunkers on this one hole and end up with a better golf hole at least from a playability standpoint and and interest is there um, is there i imagine the feedback from the players might have been initially the reaction might have been what are you doing like you're you know you've this golf hole isn't as beautiful as it once was or attractive but i imagine after they play it and get used to it they're probably enjoying the golf course more yeah yeah you, 
typically the the refrain would be from you know a member perhaps that you know maybe a better player or at least in their mind they consider themselves to be one of the club's <laughs> better players that you're dumbing the golf course down quote unquote um but you'll i've found that those vocal critics with that comment after the golf course is open um with those changes um they're the first ones to come up to you and say man this golf course is so much better i didn't really understand what you guys were trying to do with the master plan but this golf course plays like it should now and those are those are wins you know those are the times as architect you can see you know what that was you you made a difference um you created uh you created a better golf experience on top of what was there um and you made a lot of people happy so uh so yeah, I mean that's uh, that's kind of my answer on that one, Derek. You know, I I I've been thinking about I've seen fourteen Arnold Palmer golf courses, and I I, I go back and I think about which ones uh, captured my imagination, and Turtle Bay was one of them, just just because of the beauty. I, I mean, if if uh, Mr. Palmer uh, wanted beauty to be on the top of the list. He could add beauty, beauty, and beauty at uh, Turtle Bay. And same with Tralee. Were you involved with either of those golf courses that? I was not involved at Turtle Bay. Um, I did help my colleague, Brandon Johnson, at Tralee. Uh, we did some renovations there uh, four or five years ago to the ninth and tenth holes. But uh, that is probably, hands down, the best site we've ever had. And every time I look at it, that, that breaks one of McKenzie's rules of returning nines. If I'm not mistaken, it goes out and then comes back, correct? Um, actually, they do have returning nines. They um, do. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the ninth goes up to the clubhouse. It's a par five. And then 10 is a, you know, away from the clubhouse, uh, hard dog leg left. And the 18 uh, puts you right back at the clubhouse. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a tale of two nines, Jim. The, the front nine is, was on clay. Um, it was an old farm field. Not a whole lot going on. So there was a lot of, a lot of earth movement to kind of create some of those golf holes and take that flatness out of it. But it's still a striking landscape. It's right out there on the edge of the ocean. But when you, uh, when you turn and play the back nine, it's uh, – you know, buckle your seat belts because those dunes are 80 to 100 feet uh, tall in some places. And it's uh, it's a great uh, one of the best nine holes, one of my favorite nine holes in all of um, all of Ireland. Well, I can tell you, I remember uh, 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 the walls playing over the walls. Uh, were, were those uh, were those always planned to stay there? Yeah, those were existing walls, and uh, they just kept those in for some context. And uh, so I think that was that was a good decision in retrospect. That was a rule break, a little bit. <laughs> I'd say so. Thad, I, I don't know the the background to, to Trulli. You mentioned it's the best site that the company's probably ever had to work on. How did Palmer Design get that commission? Yeah, that that goes back to 1983. So that was that was before before my time. Um, I do know there was a pretty uh, competitive design fee because Ed and Arnold realized how special this site was, and uh, you know they wanted to uh, they wanted to design a golf course on it. So I, I know uh, I know they were pretty uh, pretty competitive with that fee to get that work. Do you know anything about the developer? Was it? 
you know, there's no there's no um, mystery why Palmer got so many commissions around the world and especially in the United States and North America. There's no mystery, but there's no mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I was just going to say, maybe this, this developer, maybe they're an American or, or they just, they saw what everybody else saw is, is the, that, that uh, saleability to it, which I guess is still important. You know, we think we probably take it for granted now in, in, in 2020 that, uh, obviously, if you build a course like that in those dunes, people are going to go play it. But tourism was not what it was in the early 80s. I and mean, that was around the same time, wasn't it, Jim, that uh, Tom Watson started to talk about Ballybunion? And Ballybunion was not that well known in the early 80s. And Americans didn't go do that big kind of uh, west southwest coast loop in Ireland. So I guess that would have been pretty important at that time to get somebody, a name like Palmer on your golf course, to draw outside play. And as and and I I said it jokingly. There was no there's no mystery why he got the the golf course. I had a chance to meet Mr. Palmer. Uh, the only time I got to meet Mr. Palmer was at TPC at Plum Creek in uh, uh, Castle Rock, Colorado. They're having a legends a legends tournament. That was a Pete Dye golf course, first one I ever did. And I remember Mr. Palmer walking by me in the clubhouse, and I, I said hi to him, and he engaged me like he had known me for years. And I, I felt so comforting to be around him. Uh, there's no mystery why Mr. Palmer was able to to uh, uh, secure some of the greatest sites in, in golf because he was such a personable person. And Thad, you must have been so impressed every time you were around him while he was around other people. If that didn't rub off, I, I can't imagine nothing else would have. Yeah, I, I'd say out of, of all the things I learned from Mr. Palmer, it was how to treat people um i wish i could do half as good a job as he did um because he had a lot of people tugging on him but uh you know it didn't matter what the request was he always tried to accommodate it um and for those people that worked with him they didn't find him to be a different person if you catch my drift as he was in the public eye i mean he he was just a man of integrity right i mean it didn't matter if the camera was on or off the door was open or closed he was the same guy and I, I certainly uh, learned a lot of le- life lessons from him. Um, and everyone that worked for him was just so loyal, I think, for that reason, because he treated everyone um, like they were the most important person in the room if he was talking to you. And, uh, you know, just so many. I, I've, I just don't have any, you know, I've been in this business 23 years. And if I go all the way back to my internship with Mr. Palmer, um, I haven't heard one bad story about Mr. Palmer, and that's uh, kind of hard to do. I agree. There's about a hundred bad stories about me. <laughs> Should we get into those, Jim? Uh, we'll save those for a later date. Okay. All right. But I do have to ask Dad this question: uh, Whenever we walk the site at, at Sabonic, or whenever we walk the site at Pacific Dunes, or Old Mac, or or all of the golf courses I had a chance to work on, there was always this this start off the day by by looking at certain holes or or revisiting holes that we had designed the night before or the last couple of weeks. Thad, can you walk us through what it was like away from the media once you got Mr. Palmer on site? Did you did you look at certain holes or were there certain things that Mr. Palmer wanted to see and revisit? Uh, were there certain holes that he liked designing, par threes, par fours, par fives, or were they all treated the same? 
I think Mr. Palmer's greatest gift was bringing the eye of a player um, to to bear on our on our site visits. You know, he could uh, he could go out there and say, you know, you know what, we we just need to raise the back left of that green a little bit because when that pin's back there, you know, this is going to be a tournament golf course, and those guys, I know them, they're gonna just like me, they're gonna want to see that. So um, he was he was a really visual player. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he uh, certainly brought his experience from the tour and how he wanted his golf courses to be legible from tee to green, if you know what I mean. Yes, um, yes, I do. Yeah, so it's you know a lot of our courses are were resort courses, so people were standing on the first tee of that golf course for the first time, and he wanted them to be able to get pretty quick what the ask was off the tee to get yourself get yourself in position on the next shot so um so from a strategic and a a player's standpoint um he got that and he also you know wanted to make sure they weren't making things too difficult as well um i recall a couple of times like man this green is it's just got too much contour in it or it's uh it's got you know maybe it's too small, so let's let's add another 500 square feet here. Let's get this bunker a little bit closer. So, um, you know, he was he was really good in kind of that final edit phase, if you will. Did he change? Was he afraid to change things? Was he a, was he afraid? Let's say okay, very nice man. He he knows that Thad poured his heart and soul into the 17th green at named the Arnold Palmer Golf Course. Was he was he not afraid to, to hurt your feelings a little bit and say, you know, Thad, you just don't have it right here? Or would he just massage things as he, he, as he saw fit? I'll, I'll tell you a story, um, Jim. So uh, Joey the Nose, Joe Hancock, you know him, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we were working on a big renovation up in Minneapolis at the Royal Golf Club. Mm-hmm. And the deal was uh, the developer, Hollis Kavner, hired Mr. Palmer and uh, Annika to kind of co-design 18 holes as the Kings and the Queens. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we were kind of the ghost architect for, for Annika. We worked together with her on that and it was great working with her. Um, but we were particularly, you know, Mr. Palmer's input was concentrated to the Kings nine, the back nine and the 12th hole. It was an old par three. And the green side, it had this formulaic look to it, and it was just like just too much to try to deconstruct. But there was this really cool bowl that was about 50 yards short of the green. And I was like, man, this is just a natural kind of punch bowl slash Alps part three. And, you know, we've got this ridge of dirt here short of the of the bowl. And Joe and I, you know, he, he shaped a really cool green on the other side of that. Basically, all you had to do was just clear that ridge line, and it would roll right onto the green. It may not be next to the pin on the right section, but uh, but it was it was a neat hole, right? I mean, it was it, it was uh, it's not something you want to try to manufacture out of nothing. But when those opportunities present themselves, I think you want to take advantage of them. Well, anyway. Um, I, I I go around with a client. And he's like, I don't know if this is going to work. And I'm like, well, let's let's see what Mr. Palmer thinks because uh, he was due in uh, the next day. So Mr. Palmer comes out and, you know, I'm just, you know, we're touring 10, 11. He's like really liking what he sees. And the developer is 
you kind of gotten in his ear about what's going on on the 12th hole. So he's kind of prepared for it. And he knows how passionate I am about this, this particular golf hole. Um, and he gets there and looks at it and he just looks at me and just shakes his head left and right. And that was, that was it. That was the end of that conversation. <laughs> so so that, that's uh, the equivalent he, of, of Palmer boxing your ears. That was it. That's as violent as he got. Yeah. There was no dressing down. There was no, what are you thinking? It was just a simple shake of the head that that was not going to work for, uh, for the developer and we needed to modify it. That's so we did. Um, we, uh, we lowered that ridge line, moved the green back a little bit. Turned out pretty good, but I think, uh, I think that punch bowl would have been pretty cool. Well, I can tell you there several times I've fallen in love of stuff that I've built uh, for Mr. Dye, uh, for Pete and his son Perry. And uh, I'll never forget uh, Pete telling me, uh, in, in as kind as words are possible, what the hell are you doing to me here? <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm getting as creative as you want me to get, Pete. Or, or Perry, you told me to get creative. And uh, Pete used always used this term jazzy. He yeah. says, you got to, it's too jazzy, he'd tell me. <laughs> I said, well, I thought you wanted jazzy. And, and I would never say that. But I, what I did learn uh, in those formative years was that you didn't fall in love with anything. And that uh, you did your best. You gave them a look as a shaper. I gave Mr. Dye, uh, Pete, and, and Perry, his son, I gave them a look, and then they would adjust it and edit it, as you said Mr. Palmer did. And so I learned uh, by that that if you don't fall in love with something, at least give it a try. Uh, don't be afraid to uh, step out on the edge, and, and then somebody else can reel you back in. And I was always curious if uh, Mr. Palmer uh, reeled you back in or reeled in the shapers or reeled in, you know, the, the 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 design associate on that side when he had to, and then uh, did he ever encourage you to to uh, really, as Pete would say, jazz it up? You know, he didn't have to do that with me. Um, I was always of the mind it's easier to water things down than it is to punch them up. So um, <laughs> I had the tendency um, and probably still do to exaggerate things kind of in the first go round and then uh, soften them from there. And uh, that was probably just an extension of, of how, I, how I worked together with Mr. Palmer. Um, yeah. And, you know, you know, Derek, uh, I'm going to throw this at you for, for, for five seconds. How would you like, Derek, to, uh, to write your, the most unbelievable, unbelievable golf architecture uh, manuscript and then have somebody come over, look over your shoulder and say, take that out, take that out, take that out, take that out. Don't need that. Don't need that. You know, golf writers get edited all the time. That must be the same painful stomach gut punch that sometimes I received or dad received as we, as we did these golf courses. Well, I have it written into my contract that I get final director's cut. So that never happens. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I do sympathize with, with what that's talking about is, is you do in the creative process, you know, there are no boundaries when you begin, there shouldn't be anyway. And you, you, you have this vast amount of, of material and you've got to find a way to get it down to work. And, and you, and I'll throw this back to, to you two. Sometimes I wonder, is it difficult for you to know where the line is? Because 
it's this constant push and pull between wanting to be creative and wanting to find where that where the edge is but sometimes you don't always know where it is on your own i think of things that i work on you know i start off with this massive amount of material and i've got to get it down to this this perfect little nugget and i think about bill and ben out of the sand hills with this vast amount of property and there are so many good choices there are not that not as many bad choices and you could have built so many different golf courses out there and just that process of of getting it down to those 18 holes out of all all of those the potentials and and it has to be just right it has to be perfect otherwise it's going to be the whole thing's going to be a waste that that must have been so much pressure and i wonder if you guys feel that way with when you start off with a boundless amount of material and how do you know when you get it right? You guys have talked about having people who can come in and, and edit you, but you're both at that point in your careers now where you're you get final edit pretty much. So how do you how do you each take that and how do you know when to stop? How do you know where that edge is? Thad, you or me? What do you think? Hey, I'll I'll take a crack at it. I, I just think about the talent that we try to surround ourselves with. Um. And all the great golf courses that, you know, we've worked with Jeff Bradley, Brett Hochstein, Joey the Nose, Hancock, uh, Jeff Stein, worked with uh, Tad and Rob at King Collins, um, and Antonio Miranda at Pro Golf, and just, uh, you know, bringing their opinions in and um, weighing weighing their experience into, you know, what uh, what they're bringing to the table, um, I, I think is a good way to kind of uh, kind of test your theories. And, uh, you know, not, not that every decision has to be one of consensus. Um, you know, there needs to be someone that, uh, and and it's the lead architect that has, that makes that final call, but it's always a, it's a team effort. I I remember when I was in college, I had a great professor, Jim Perry, and he used to work for, uh, Robert, Robert, uh, Trent Jones, old man Jones. And, uh, he, he said, uh, he told me before I even got into the profession, he said, Dad, there are no heroes in golf course architecture. And I really didn't understand what that meant at the time. But the longer I'm in this business and the more I appreciate all the opportunities that Mr. Palmer gave me for creative license, the more I want to enlist people like, I, you know, and the, the construction teams that we work with to put a part of themselves into the project. So I, I think that creates a better end product. You got to put your ego aside to be able to do that. Sometimes I have a hard time doing that, but uh, the older I get, uh, the more I just want to want to bring other people uh, to bear, especially the, the, the more we rotate into this design build model. Um, I think we're doing some of the best work that we've ever done, but uh, trying to find that line, uh, Derek, to your question, I think uh, a lot of that is through experience and listening to the people around you that you uh, that you trust. I could go down that road for a couple hours, Derek. I, as the one creating the features and then being edited by others and then watching shapers be creative for me and then i have to decide whether to edit i can tell you that one of the things that mr die and his son perry did for me was allowed me to be creative and even though i knew that they were going to edit me i they were going to allow me to be creative and so much so that they would send me packing on the plane to go look at 
other styles of, of architecture and look at other styles of, of designs that they had done. They were not afraid to put me on the plane. Hey, I want you to go to, uh, uh, I remember being sent to Palm Springs to look at some of the stuff that Pete had done there. I remember going to Old Marsh. I remember Pete telling me to go to Piners. And wherever he told me to go, I went. And so I realized they sent me to Scotland to study Lynx Golf. I mean, they want me to be creative. And so I have to do that. I have to give them that creativity and realize, don't fall in love with it. They may change it. But today, on the other side of the, of the, uh, of the, of the room, I must allow people who are helping me create something really cool in, in the ground. Uh, I don't want to stifle their creativity. I got to tell a story. I hope Kyle Franz doesn't mind this story. I remember Kyle Franz, uh, he started uh, at uh, in Bannon Dunes working for us at, uh, at Pacific Dunes. He is such a talented shaper. I remember him uh, working at a golf course in California with me, and he was very good at uh, a visual a bunkering, visual uh, off the tee in, in the landing area. And I remember saying, you know, uh, Kyle, let's, uh, we don't want to jazz these bunkers up too much. And uh, a couple of people were standing around with me. George Waters was one of them. There was a couple other guys with me. And, and Kyle, I, I know he did it on purpose. He put a couple little more jazzy wrinkles in the bunkers. And I said, what? Are, and I, we got into a, a, a kind of a, a fun uh, a laughing, shouting match. And I said, no more jazz. And, you know, he, he would do it on purpose just to, to get me riled up. You can't. The, the purpose of the story was that you can't stifle that creativity. Kyle Franz is creative. You don't want to stifle him. You want to let him uh, to, to think of all those things that he's he's been thinking about. That's why he's so good at the work he does is because he's passionate and you don't want to stifle that creativity that he gives you. And so me being on the side of, of, of running the bulldozer and shaping, you know, I was going to be as creative as I could be. And somebody I realized was going to edit me. And now today, as Thad says, you want the shapers, the, the people who make it look the way it looks. Uh, Derek, you know, Bill Coor has 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 uh, championed the shapers that work for him. Uh, and you don't want to stifle that creativity because they have that passion. Kyle Franz has that passion. Uh, they, uh, as Thad as, um, uh, pointed out, uh, uh, Joe uh, has that passion. You don't want to stifle it, but you also know that uh, that sometimes you just uh, you, you you have to shake the head a little bit, like Mr. Palmer did to Thad. <laughs> just got to just got to tone it down a little bit. And those are the cool things that I, I love being around shapers. I love young energy. Thad knows this. That when you have talent around you, things are only going to be better. And, and the team, the team is what makes it. Uh, I wish that everybody could get credit that put their heart and soul into the golf courses that we design and build. Yeah. What you, what you were just talking about, Jim, Jim uh, reminds me of a, and I hope uh, Mr. Coor doesn't rem uh, mind me telling the story, but it's a pretty short one. Uh, it actually comes from Jeff Bradley, but uh, just talking about editing his bunkers, Jeff would do some pretty creative stuff and the bill would come through on a site visit and if he wanted, uh, if he didn't like a bunker that Jeff had done or wanted him to make a change to it at the time, I think under the coat caps, they were, uh, they were giving away, you know, 
the six pack of Coke, a hundred dollars, a gift certificate, but most of them said, try again. <laughs> so well, that's, that's what Bill would give Jeff when he didn't like one of his bunkers was a try again bottle cap. But you can never stifle that creativity. You got to keep trying. You got to go for the, for the gold. You got to hit the home run. You have to win the, the, uh, the, the, be under the golden rainbow because that's what makes golf courses beautiful. That's what makes golf courses strategic. That's what makes golf courses uh, fun to play. Uh, and so that, as Thad said, you don't want to dumb them down, but you have to know when to reel it in and you have to know when to let it go. And shapers help you do that. Thad knows that as good as anybody. Absolutely. One of the best things I'd ever done uh, was start to to learn to run a bulldozer. I'm not saying I'm a A or even a B shaper at this point, but uh, it has helped me like nothing else I've ever taken on in golf course architecture to kind of have this connection between what I'm drawing and what is actually being built or how I'm trying to communicate an idea to to a shaper. Um, I don't know about you, Jim, but uh, I know you were probably a shaper uh, first and foremost, but there's got to be an advantage as an architect with that, uh, with that experience of, of running the dose around and, and implementing uh, golf features. It makes it easier because I remember a couple times at Apache Stronghold, uh, the, the crew would go to lunch and, and I'd, I'd stay at, I'd stay uh I'd go get on the dozer during lunch and and shape a couple things that I thought, you know, if I could just build it, it would be easier than try to convey that through communications. And so having that ability to shape, having the ability to understand how to create the feature, uh, knowing how to preserve the feature, uh, I think is really important. And, you know, Derek, what's really been cool in the last 10 years 15, 20 years, is that a lot of guys, a lot of uh, women who are coming up in the design business have learned how to build their own stuff, uh, how to build design build. And I think that that has allowed the creativity to go up. Uh, I'm uh, I'm not saying that a shaper that doesn't design his own golf course doesn't know what he's doing, but I'm saying a designer that can take his thoughts, who, who can't communicate exactly the final little points, if he could just get on the excavator and and rump it up a little bit, or or as Pete say, jazz it up a little bit, I think it's better. Uh, I think it's better for the uh, the end result, the creativity that goes in it, because not everybody can have a Jeff Bradley on their site. It's just it's impossible to do. Jeff Bradley is talented. You know, there's only one Jeff Bradley, and you know there are other talented guys, but it'd be cool if you had three or four Jeff Bradleys. Let's talk about this era um, before we leave. We are in a very creative era right now. After World War II, golf was produced in a different way than it was before the Depression and different than it is now. And part of the reason is because as they went into this era of a 20, 25-year period where there was a shortage of golf courses, golf was being produced for the masses, for leisure, for recreation, golf courses became a product and a consumer product. And there was a drive for many reasons for efficiency, uh, for ease of maintenance that golf courses were not built 
always in a very creative way. They were basically consumer products and, and what consumers want is consistency, uh, reliability, a predictable outcome. And that era kind of produced golf courses that didn't have blind shots. They didn't have a lot of quirk. Everything was, was kind of uh, straightforward. It, it produced reliable results, just like an oven, just like a toaster. That's what, that's what consumers wanted. Then we got into eras in the 80s and 90s where golf became a little more ornamental, but it still kind of felt and was produced in a, in a fairly uh, formulaic, uh, regimented way, really going back to these rules we started talking about with par 72, championship length, returning nines, all that. But in the last 20 years, Jim, as you just mentioned, there's been a, a real push for creativity and a breaking of these rules. You know, we could talk about back-to-back par threes at Pacific Dunes, 10 and 11. That was very unconventional. Uh, non-returning nines, uh, bringing in uh, talented people who can create these different shapes, uh, working great sites that prompted designers to not look for predetermined solutions, to kind of uh, look but don't see, if you will. Yeah, we've gotten to this place exactly. now, is, is my point, is we've gotten to this place now where these old rules of architecture are really not always adhered to. And I'm wondering, and I'll, I'll start with you, Thad, that's great, that's liberating, that, that frees you. But now, in that environment where everybody's free to be creative, how do you distinguish yourself? How do you go about drawing attention to your work when, when everybody's kind of picked their game up and elevated what they do to this style that is so unique to this era? That is a great question, Derek. I think the best that you can hope for as an architect, you know, if you've got a site with any character or context at all, is to go out and really understand uh, that piece of ground and route a golf course that's going to take advantage of every inch of it. And that's the best chance you're going to have of creating a memorable golf course that's different from anything else. As far as golf courses, you know, that were built 10, 20 years ago and kind of had this regimented formulaic approach to it, you know, we're, you know, I look at the top 10 golf courses in the United States and and five of them are not par 72. Um, Correct. Yeah. And if you look at the top 10 courses in the world and I, I, I guess different lists, but I'll just say Royal County Down, Royal Dornick, Royal Melbourne, Muirfield, the old course, uh, Royal Portrush, Terra Edie, and Shankin Bay, Turnberry, and Cabot Cliffs. Just of those 10 courses, six of those are not par 72. So if, if the best golf courses, at least by various publications uh, definition, are not par 72 by and large, um, then why is that? A barometer for the quality of any golf course or the yardage for that matter um, or you know how many bunkers it has um, so I, I think you know what all those courses have in common is that they were deferential to the site and uh, and they, the architect basically took advantage of what they were given and it made that golf course unique I can tell you for me I think the biggest advantage you can give me as a designer is a good piece of land. And so I will be successful. And I've said this before. I've been quoted this before. 75% of the battle 
in creating. And a, a battle is, is a poor term. Uh, but I believe that 75% of the battle in creating a golf course that uh, many people will enjoy is the land. And if you give me good land and you don't, you don't, as an owner or developer, you don't put a bunch of rules down that I have to have, that said, par 72, uh, certain size of greens, uh, several of the other rules that people think that are, are important, championship, you know, championship quality golf course, please give me a break. So I'm thinking if I give, if you give me the land, 75% of the battle is good land. So now I just got to fix 25%. Okay. Creative routing, cool and unique green sites, uh, fun shots into those greens. And so all of those things start to, to add up to make it a hundred percent. You hope perfect, but the, minimal amount of rules that you throw at me in the beginning and we could just discuss them and i understand i understand that you know we just can't start at the clubhouse and and just keep going forever we eventually got to come back i get that point but give me the land and give me the chance to to not be weighted down by rules do not stifle my creativity do not stifle the shaper's creativity and you will get a golf course that you will come back at time and time and time again. And the fun factor, and, and as uh, Mr. Palmer said, the beauty uh, and the playability uh, will be top notch. And, and you'll want to come back time and time and time again. Couldn't agree more. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it, Thad? It sounds great. I, yeah, I, I can disagree with zero uh, percent of that. <laughs> You're all looking for those great sites, though. Uh, there aren't that many. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many more kind of remote golf destinations are sustainable. I, I mean, I wish the it was an infinite number because that would mean we might have a chance at one of those. Um, but I just wonder how many more the market can bear. How, do you guys have an opinion on that? I have, well, luckily, yeah. No, I I don't know. Jim, you would be in a better I, my my gut. I it seems to think that we've got enough. Realistically, I mean, I'm all for great golf courses being built, but yeah, as far as demand goes, I don't know. And I, I can say, luckily, uh, a couple of the sites that uh, I'm looking at are 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 not uh, on the ends of the earth, and so uh, they will be closer to. Uh, as you say, that they're not really destination places, but I believe that people thought that Pinehurst in Carolinas was the destination. Remember, mm-hmm. you're going to get on a train and you're you're going to go to Pinehurst, and and that's way out there. <laughs> and and then they said uh, we're going to go to Shinnecock and the National because that's a destination because that's way out there. So I think it's relative, Derek. I know how far is out there. And uh, yes, we, we compare it as today, as we think about today, uh, having to travel. But, you know, travel is getting easier. Everybody can do it. I'm not saying that it's the final answer, but Pinehurst used to be a destination. And some of the courses in Florida used to be a destination. 
And so I think it's, I think right now it's perceived to be uh, 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 an area that's uh, hard to get to, but uh, as, as the country grows and as, uh, as, uh, as the times change and travel becomes easier, I'm not so sure that they, they will be considered a destination, much like Pinehurst has changed and become a, a part of the, uh, of the landscape of, of, uh, uh, of uh, a city. Right. Mm-hmm. Jim, I think that's, you're absolutely correct that the chances of creating a golf course that is, will last the test of time and, and continue to draw people and be engaging round after round after round increases exponentially if the ground is good, if you've got a really great piece of land, just as you described. But it seems to me that if you're in your business, it, it's you're those are going to still come around very infrequently and you'd be better you'd be not better off you'd better be good at making <laughs> making something out of nothing like taking a taking a a site that isn't good and finding a way to be unconventional and create something that's memorable uh, because those types of sites are going to be much more common going in the future than you know the the really tremendous golf sites that that is that kind of what what you think about when you look toward the future yeah i'm I'm certainly hopeful um you know i didn't get in this business to just design ordinary golf courses um so yeah ultimately it would be great to have one of those epic sites and i you know but in between those distant opportunities you've got to focus on you know courses that are maybe a little bit closer into urban areas that uh that maybe were designed suboptimally or for a different uh kind of a different set of criteria i think there are a lot of lessons from those remote golf courses in the golden age that can be applied when uh, you know some of these courses are coming up for renovation um and that that's you know 75% of our business right now is is renovating uh, courses that are 20 to 30 years old that we've done done in the past, and it's, it's taking those those lessons of uh, kind of addition through subtraction um, width, where you can, of course, you're constricted with uh, with the routing in, in a lot of occasions. Um, sometimes that's not going to change. Sometimes it does, but for the most part, uh, you're locked into the routing and the corridors. But uh, I, I think that's really um, a, a great test for any architect out there. If they can come in and make something uh, special on top of something ordinary, that's good architecture. And there's there's a big demand for that. I think there's a lot more opportunities in that category. Um and I think that's maybe a, a greater surface service to the golf general golf public that don't have the resources or the time to go out to those remote destinations. There's certainly a place for it, but for the guy that's, you know, sneaking out of work at 3:30 and want, trying to squeeze in 18 in the summer, um, it's it would it's great for him to have access to great great golf course architecture. Can't disagree. Can't disagree. Jim, you know what I, what I hear when Thad says that? I hear common ground. I hear common ground. Common ground was, was a, I mean, it's not a I bad think. site, but it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not tremendously endowed. And that's um, you and, and the people you worked with there went in and, and completely rearranged that property. And it's one of the great urban golf courses in the United States. 
As Thad was talking, I was thinking, just like you, common ground. I think that's some buck. He's talking about common ground and how you turn something that was, you know, uh, Air Force-based style of architecture. Uh, Baldock was his name. He he did a lot of Air Force-based golf courses. And, yes, we, 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 we opened it up. We created a style of, 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 of architecture that was in the urban setting. You're absolutely right. Eric Iverson led the charge there, very creative uh, at Common Ground. If it wasn't for Eric and his, and his uh, detail work, that place wouldn't be what it is today. But a lot of talented shapers working there. But that is right. The urban ground is still available. The urban ground uh, could rethink some of these golf courses just like uh, they did a common ground, and nothing wrong with that thought, Thad. Nothing wrong at all with that. And and Thad, if you find a perfectly flat piece of ground that is orientated from north to south, uh, I got a Lido project I'd love to work on uh, on that flat piece of ground. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. No, common <laughs> ground uh, it is a great uh, a great uh, compliment to to the Denver area. I mean, just having great architecture and you know it's accessible. Um, but it's also affordable, right? I mean, the, the way the golf course was designed, at least my perception is it's all about the green complexes. There's plenty of width out there, but, uh, from T to just before the green, um, you know, nothing extraordinary, um, sound strategy certainly, but, uh, it just goes to show you, at least in my opinion, um, how you can accomplish you can get 75 percent of the way to great golf course architecture with with 18 great green complexes that's funny uh you bring that up when we interviewed for the job at common ground with the colorado golf association uh, one of one of my statements was i'm gonna i'm gonna build a par three golf course with with uh, a par three with no bunkers on it and they all looked at me like what a bunkerless part three how could you do that and that's the 14th hole at common ground so you're right uh, good green complexes thoughtful green complexes uh not a you don't have to have as don mahaffey said you don't have to have 60 bunkers you could do it with 19 bunkers as they did in houston so creativity thoughtfulness uh, don't stifle that creativity don't set the rules uh let there be some freedom uh think think freely uh you're right that it can be done it could be done in every urban city across the country yeah we uh just finished a go- no not just three years ago we uh finished uh the royal golf club and just outside of saint paul minnesota and out of all of our golf courses it had the least amount of bunkers we ended up with 23 but the site was just it was so contoured naturally from all the glacial activity um you know over the the millennia that uh that was the hazard you know it was the contours and uh so that was that was that's something that we were trying to keep in mind uh that less is more philosophy and uh, you know that translates to a, a cheaper golf course to maintain and something that's much more affordable to play as a result I got to go see this place. I have not seen it. So when I'm up back up in Minneapolis, I'm going to run over there. Please do. I think you'll uh, think you'll like it. Yep. Less is more. Jim, when you get up to the uh, the, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, I want to go with you because that sounds like a great place to see and the kind of golf course that I really dig. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement. I'll, I'll give you a buzz. We got to go see it. All right. Let's take a road trip to Minnesota. 
we talked about White Bear last time too. So there's a week, yeah, there's probably a good week you could spend up in that Minneapolis area. There's all kinds of great yeah. golf up there. A lot of good golf. There, there's, there's an embedded homage to uh, the seventh at uh, Crystal Downs. So keep an eye out for that. Uh oh. Okay. Uh oh. Scavenger hunt. <laughs> Thad, that was so great to catch up with you. Good to talk to you again. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I sure did. Same here, Derek, Jim. It was great. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's fun. I agree. Thank you. All right, Jim, I hope you enjoyed, I know you enjoyed that conversation with Thad. We went and covered quite a lot of topics and it just strikes me, you know, thinking back on the, the talk and the discussion is how there's a reason we consider these the unwritten rules of architecture is because the rules are slightly different for everybody. They kind of change through time. <laughs> the minute you you state there's a rule, we can think of 10 examples of, of why it shouldn't be a rule or why it isn't a rule. So it's just sort of a nebulous concept of this kind of rules. And yet we both know that as much as we try to talk about it or define them or, or think about them, talk about how they're broken, they do sort of exist out there somewhere. They've been driving the pattern of golf architecture since the beginning and through different eras. Um, and it, the most enjoying part of that, though, I think was thinking about Arnold Palmer. You were able to add, ask Thad some questions about Palmer, what his design thoughts were. I'm thinking about Arnold Palmer design through the decades and how they were so good for their clients and really so good for, for golfers. I think golfers really enjoyed playing those golf courses, but it was a design style and a design firm that I do think mostly stuck by the quote-unquote rules of architecture. Well, and that's one of the reasons I asked that about what were the first things that you and Mr. Palmer discussed when he came on site, and he kindly shared the three things that were most important to Mr. Palmer. And as you know, Alistair McKenzie had 13 rules of golf course architecture, and his protege, Mr. Robert Hunter, in the book, The Links, turned it up by two rules and made 15 rules <laughs> of, 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 of architecture. But for Mr. Palmer, the man of the people, his three rules were simple. And Thad and Brandon, their job was to create and make sure that these rules were, were uh, abided by. And what else could you ask for uh, in the simplicity of, of golf? And, and that is to is to stand by your principles, whatever they may be, a beauty strategy, and other rules that people think about. Um, and then if you if you stand by those rules and you make those important, then your golf courses will be accepted by a lot of people. If you go outside of the boundary, outside of those rules, then you're subject to criticism. And and I, I can I read this to you from uh, Mr. Harry Colt, and this was in a this was in the book some essay, some essays on golf course architecture. Do you mind? No, I'd love to hear it. And I know Colt had some written rules as well. Yeah, everybody has rules, and and but. Thad's explanation of Mr. Palmer's when he came on site was interesting, but I want to read this to you, and I'm going to okay. quote this, okay? Yes. Quote, Moreover, golfers are becoming more and more interested in the architecture and construction of courses. 
They realize that there is no other pursuit in the open air which gives them the same relaxation from the worries of life. To some, the healthy exercise and the battle of the game played with the keen opponent are the attractions. But to others, the rest gained from a round played with a pleasant companion on a fine spring morning on a course with beautiful natural surroundings gives us the greatest pleasure and the actual result of such masses is not of paramount importance, end quote. Mm -hmm. This was Harry Colt 60, 70, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, talking about these people, these golfers becoming more and more interested in architecture and construction. And yet today, we talk about the rules of golf and we apply them to what Mr. Palmer felt was important. And it's really what Harry Colt said, yes. enjoying the beautiful natural surroundings. What else could you ask for? Fun, playability, beauty. I mean, if you can, <laughs> of course, the trick is, is to nail those and knowing what they are. I, I would, wouldn't you venture to guess that almost every practicing architect would try to deliver on those things to some degree, maybe one or two slightly more than the other, but it's, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to, 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 to get all three of those things working in conjunction. Um, and then I think it would have been good if, if, if Palmer design, maybe it would have benefited them a little bit if, if they could have loosened up a little bit here and there. You know, we talked about Pete Dye and Pete Dye's artistry, and one thing that what one thing that that he did that still makes him critically interesting and critically accepted and and thought of in an artistic way is because he had a point of view. He had a very distinct point of view, and I think it's just hard if if you don't have something else going. You talk about using the land a lot, needing a you know needing a great piece of land to create interest, and I guess maybe that's Correct. the thing is is the is what are you also doing in addition to beauty, playability, uh, and fun to make it interesting? And I'm not sure that that Palmer design always historically going back over 45 years always nailed down that interest factor. And maybe it's because they were really kind of color wanted to color in between the lines and and deliver a product for a client who wasn't interested to take a chance. Well, I think that your your opinion, your view of that is solid, but you when you step are you prepared for criticism, Derek? Are you prepared for people not to play your golf course if they don't like it? Are you prepared to be ridiculed by others? who say, well, that wasn't very good. What was the purpose of building that golf course or designing that or doing that type of green? Criticism, critique, observations, people's reflection. Do I want to go back and play it? And so when you step over that line, when you think about doing something that's just a little bit off uh, color, you are subject to the criticism of Will it be accepted by golfers? And when you look at an Arnold Palmer design, 
They are beautiful to look at. They're, people enjoy playing them. And so why go through and suffer criticism or from critique and opinion when all you do is you stand there and say, this is what I want. I want some beauty. I want some strategy and the things that that had told us. And then you don't have to worry about criticism. Do you like criticism, Derek? No, I've never gotten any criticism. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I run away the first time I hear anything critical, I (laughs) shut down. Well, you have to have a pretty strong will. You do. You have to have a pretty strong ego, and you have to convince what you're, you have to convince golfers what you're doing is cutting edge and what you're doing is just a little bit outside of the boundaries of the rules. And sometimes people accept it. And Pete Dye on a lot of his golf courses, TPC Sawgrass, Whistling Straits, Hilton Head, all of those golf courses, Kiowa Island, they suffered criticism. Did that make him a better designer? Did that make people want to play those golf courses even more to take on the challenge? You know, I'll never know because I know what I think, but I don't know what the other 100 golfers who went through and played those places. But when you walked off, when you walked off Tralee, when you walked off of Bay Hill, they were beautiful and fun to play. And isn't that all that you could ask somebody to do? Absolutely. And and I, I think the what you just touched on is is the the proofs in the pudding, so to speak, is that those golf courses exist and they're played. And I'm sure their members and the public who play them love those golf courses. And that's that's the battle. That's the whole piece of the pie. You touched on something though that, that is really interesting. And as I'm as I'm talking about sort of this maybe an inherent conflict between artistry and commerce. And I would say that Palmer design successfully fell in the column of commerce or graded toward commerce a little bit more than, than, than artistry. It makes me think you do, you mentioned Pete Dye. You do have to be kind of a special person to really put yourself out there artistically, to be willing to be so committed to some vision that, you're going to open yourself up to to being critically attacked or exposed because what you're doing is unconventional and maybe you are breaking some of these rules we're talking about you're doing something that is abnormal for the sake of artistry or because you're an artistic person and it does take a very specific and rare person to be willing to do that i can think of some designers who do that some designers did that jim successfully pete die We've come to love Mike Strands. You know, he's controversial, but but everybody respects him. I've talked about Jim Ang before. I, I think he was out there. He was really trying to do something artistically singular. He gives, deserves a lot of credit for that. And then sometimes you get people that were not successful, like a Desmond Muirhead, who were taking their, these bold ideas and putting them in packages that might have... I don't know, Jim, would you say too far... How would you define what is what is too far in architecture? Taking an idea to an extreme that, that instead of pushing the boundaries, breaks the boundaries. Well, let me go back to Pete for just a second, if you don't mind. Please. 
he was never afraid to step outside of the lines of, of the rules in the spirit of the competition. Is that, is that fair? Mm-hmm. Because he was really challenging. He was really challenging the, 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 the better players uh, of the era that he was designing in. And he broke a lot of rules. He, he wasn't afraid to make it just a little bit harder. And people accepted it. And some people took it as a challenge. Desmond Muirhead, funny, I visited his office years and years ago in, in Northern California. Uh, a friend of mine who, who passed away, John Hardbottle, used to work for Desmond Muirhead. And I went and visited their office in Northern California because I wanted to know more about uh, Mr. Muirhead. I didn't get a chance to, to meet him back then. That was in the 80s. And I thought to myself, is Desmond Muirhead really far and above in golf course architecture theme, art and theme, than anybody could ever imagine? And when he decided to do his themes of golf architecture, they were sometimes criticized. Now, does it make it outside the lines? Well, it's only outside the lines when nobody plays it. Is that fair? Yeah, I think I think that's got to be the 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 bottom line, doesn't it? And so when Desmond Muirhead was doing his art and his creativity, for him it was an expression of of the designs that he wanted to do. And Mike Strantz for his, the designs that he wanted to do, and for Pete Dye to challenge the best players and what he wanted to do. Those were all of the rules that those individual people set up for themselves. And they were only outside the lines when nobody showed up to play it and nobody wanted to see them. But there was a lot of people coming to see what Mr. Desmond Muirhead was, had done and what Mike Strantz had done and what Pete Dye had done because each one of them set their rules and it was up to us to decide if it was acceptable or have critics say what they say. But each one of them was it within their rules of what they desired, what they thought was the proper design for golf. Right. And when you think about those those different eras, the early 2000s, late 90s, when Strands was working, when Eng was working, different periods in time, Desmond Muir had had a long career he didn't start doing his Stone Harbor, um, some of that really allegorical and mythological <laughs> stuff until the eighties. Yeah, but he's right. been, he, you know, he's he's been around since the sixties. So, so you, I look back at those times. I think about that. In some ways, there was a lot of diversity throughout time that maybe we don't see as much of now. Part of it's because we were building a lot more courses. There was more development, so more opportunities for people to become artistic and and push the boundaries and, and quote unquote break the rules. And it strikes me that that was a really, that's a more interesting place in golf overall. It doesn't mean you can't have really fine, artistic, natural courses like we we see now, like like you've had a hand in building quite a few of those. That's a very desirable style. That's great for golf. But I think we are lacking the, the rule breaker 
Um, it, it, we're starting to see it a little bit now with, I think we're getting into this period and all credit to you and, and Bill Corr and, and Tom and, and Gil a little bit for kind of setting the stage for uh, us as a golfing public to be able to relax our expectations. I think we're starting, we are starting to see more courses in development that are, for instance, sub 18 holes, an eight holer here, a 12 holer here. We're starting to see golf courses where maybe par is, is not taken as seriously anymore. So we are getting into this place where the quote unquote rules are, are being relaxed a little bit, but I'm not sure we're seeing that, that daredevil, that risk taker, that, that singular artistic voice that has popped up occasionally in the past. And I'm wondering if, 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 uh, if you think the environment is right, if that's even possible in this current environment. It's always right. It's it's always possible. I would say that we should never discount what Desmond Muirhead gave to golf. It was a it was an artistic expression, or for that matter, all of the golf course of that era, eighties, nineties, seventies, sixties, and each one of them had an expression, a style, and we shouldn't discount those either, because there's a golf course for everybody. So this new era or this era of, of beautiful sites and, and beautiful topography and, and the ground is, is most, uh, almost perfect for golf, that's okay too. And, and I think to myself, I would have never learned about golf course architecture if I hadn't seen the Desmond Muirhead golf course. I, had ne- I would have never learned about golf course architecture if I had not seen a Joe Lee or a, you name it, you name it, the golf course architects that were out there at the time. And so who is going to be next? Maybe it's a young, young man or a young woman that comes up with an idea that has the passion to carry it out and it has the ego to resist critique and to be willing to change the rules. Maybe it's a 12-hole golf course. You know, Derek, I once saw a golf course in Colorado that was played in the round. Do you know what that means? It means that that means that this golf course started on the inside of a radius and you just played this golf around in a circle and you worked your way out of this circle. I think it was six or nine holes and you, you, you ended up being on the outside of the circle. So you walked in and you played out golf in the round. I only seen one of them. Have you ever seen golf in the round? I've never even heard of that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cool. <laughs> so it was like every, every hole is like a dog leg left or, or right. <laughs> yes. Or right. <laughs> wow. And it was golf in the round. And I thought this is pretty cool, but you guess what? Remember, remember what I said? Uh, nobody wanted to play it. <laughs> nobody wanted to play it. So I guess it wasn't that cool. But what The concept if, that needs, maybe just needs a little work. <laughs> maybe a little work. <laughs> you know, I've thought of an idea about playing golf in a stadium effect where you played uh, three holes and, and you played in, in, a, in a, uh, a three, four, and a five and you played it in a, so people could look down on you while you played it. Well, I haven't found that perfect piece of property yet, hmm. but I've always thought about that. What if you can gather 60, 70,000 people around a big 
big venue and look down at people playing golf in a three-hole loop. I've always wanted to do that. That's interesting. But like golf in the round, uh, <laughs> you've not seen it, so it must not be universally accepted. I have the scorecard. I'll have to send it to you someday. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Wow, what a concept. <laughs> well, let me, the concept since I, was unbelievable. <laughs> since I've got you here, Jim, and before we sign off, uh, what's can you give me, and I'm, I'm popping this on you. I didn't, we didn't prepare for this. Um, can you think of a time when you've been involved in, in a golf design, golf construction project where you weren't sure if you were taking something too far, you weren't sure if it was going to be acceptable. Um, you've talked about, you know, Pete Dye editing you, but I was wondering if there's uh, a specific moment or a sp- specific feature that, that you consciously felt and that got through that, that made it into the final product that, that you really felt like you were breaking the rules on. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty in-depth question. I, I can't, I can't think of it right now. I, I do know that I thought Apache Stronghold, a golf course in Globe, Arizona that we did for the Apache Nation, I thought there were some golf holes out there that were just unbelievably cool and creative. And I could think of one hole, the eighth hole at Apache Stronghold, where you had a sight line in the distance. Uh, um, uh, 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 aiming point in the distance. It was a it was a mountain in the distance, and as you played the hole and you worked your way down towards the green, it was a par five. The mountain disappeared, and you had no more guiding light. Hmm. And so, even though you set sail with an island in the distance to navigate to, as you got closer and closer the island disappeared and you kind of lost your way. And I thought, this is pretty cool. The eighth hole at Apache Stronghold. And so maybe that was a little bit over the top, but really you were still within the confines of the turf. So you weren't going to get lost, but there was that beacon that kind of said you're headed this way. But as the farther you went into the hole, the beacon disappeared and then you had to figure it out yourself. I think just on the spur of, of answering your question, I could think of that hole as being one of those, wow, this is pretty cool. I wonder if anybody will get it. That's amazing. That's like, you know, you're, you're playing with the sense. You're playing with the player's senses. You know, they see something, and then all of a sudden you're introducing this element of disorientation. You spring it on them like a trap. That's pretty, that's pretty psychological. It's pretty cool. And, and, and there's one design that I've, that, uh, that I've been uh, – dying to try i gotta find the right owner to do it when i get my chance and that's building a hole within a hole and someday i'll explain it in depth but imagine playing a hole within a hole i've been dying to do it someday i will i just gotta find the right owner all right is that That like that may be over the top okay i'll leave that there i was gonna ask (laughs) if that was like a george thomas thing but i feel like it, it might be a slightly different direction than that and we'll have to explore that topic on another on another sure. volume. I agree. I agree. Or maybe I get to show it to you someday. Uh, let's do that instead. Yeah. Let's, yeah, that, let's, let's make that happen, and, and then, I'll, and then we'll, uh, we'll report from the field. A hole within a hole. Awesome. That'll do it for Volume 4 of the Salon, Jim. Um, we want to thank Thad for coming in and having that great discussion with us. Always great to talk to him, and we look forward to catching up with him, as we said, uh, down the road someplace on a project. 
Thanks to you, Jim, for your contribution. And I look forward to the next time we do this. I can hardly wait. I'm going to go seek out the golf course that Thad told us in Minnesota, Minneapolis area. Uh, He caught my attention. I'm going to go check it out. And I agree with you. Thad was great. I learned a lot in that short period of time talking with him. I look forward to seeing more of his work and Brendan Johnson's work. That's right. More conversations with them to have. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch up with you again next time. That's it.